The Second Commandment of the Large Catechism by Martin Luther Translated by F. Bente and W. H. T. Dow This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Second Commandment Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. As the First Commandment has instructed the heart, and taught the basis of faith, so this commandment leads us forth and directs the mouth and tongue to God. For the first objects that spring from the heart and manifest themselves are words. Now, as I have taught above how to answer the question, what it is to have a God, so you must learn to comprehend simply the meaning of this and all the commandments, and to apply it to yourself. If, then, it be asked, how do you understand the second commandment, or what is meant by taking in vain or misusing God's name, answer briefly thus. It is misusing God's name when we call upon the Lord God, no matter in what way, for purposes of falsehood or wrong of any kind. Therefore this commandment enjoins this much, that God's name must not be appealed to falsely or taken upon the lips while the heart knows well enough or should know differently, as among those who take oaths in court, where one side lies against the other. For God's name cannot be misused worse than for the support of falsehood and deceit. Let this remain the exact German and simplest meaning of this commandment. From this every one can readily infer when and in how many ways God's name is misused, although it is impossible to enumerate all its misuses. Yet to tell it in a few words, all misuse of the divine name occurs first in worldly business, and in matters which concern money, possessions, honor, whether it be publicly in court, in the market, or wherever else men make false oaths in God's name, or pledge their souls in any matter. And this is especially prevalent in marriage affairs, where two go and secretly betroth themselves to one another, and afterward abjure their plighted troth. But the greatest abuse occurs in spiritual matters which pertain to the conscience, when false preachers rise up and offer their lying vanities as God's word. Behold, all this is decking oneself out with God's name, or making a pretty show, or claiming to be right, whether it occur in gross worldly business or in sublime, subtle matters of faith and doctrine. And among liars belong also blasphemers, not alone the very gross, well known to everyone, who disgrace God's name without fear, these are not for us, but for the hangman to discipline, but also those who publicly traduce the truth and God's word and consign it to the devil. Of this there is no need now to speak further. Here, then, let us learn and take to heart the great importance of this commandment, that with all diligence we may guard against and dread every misuse of the holy name as the greatest sin that can be outwardly committed. For to lie and deceive is in itself a great sin, but is greatly aggravated when we attempt to justify it, and seek to confirm it by invoking the name of God, and using it as a cloak for shame, so that from a single lie a double lie, nay, manifold lies, result. For this reason, too, God has added a solemn threat to this commandment, to wit, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain, that is, it shall not be condoned to any one, nor pass unpunished. For as little as he will leave it unavenged, if any one turn his heart from him, as little will he suffer his name to be employed for dressing up a lie. Now, alas, it is a common calamity in all the world 
that there are as few who are not using the name of God for purposes of lying and all wickedness, as there are those who with their heart trust God alone. For by nature we all have within us this beautiful virtue, to wit, that whoever has committed a wrong would like to cover up and adorn his disgrace, so that no one may see it or know it, and no one is so bold as to boast to all the world of the wickedness he has perpetrated. All wish to act by stealth, and without any one being aware of what they do. Then, if any one be arraigned, the name of God is dragged into the affair, and must make the villainy look like godliness, and the shame like honor. This is the common course of the world, which, like a great deluge, has flooded all lands. Hence we have also as our reward what we seek and deserve, pestilences, wars, famines, conflagrations, floods, wayward wives, children, servants, and all sorts of defilement. Whence else should so much misery come? It is still a great mercy that the earth bears and supports us. Therefore, above all things, our young people should have this commandment earnestly enforced upon them, and they should be trained to hold this and the first commandment in high regard. And whenever they transgress, we must at once be after them with the rod, and hold the commandment before them, and constantly inculcate it, so as to bring them up not only with punishment, but also in the reverence and fear of God. Thus you now understand what it is to take God's name in vain, that is, to recapitulate briefly, either simply for purposes of falsehood, and to allege God's name for something that is not so, or to curse, swear, conjure, and in short to practice whatever wickedness one may. Besides this, you must also know how to use the name of God aright. For when saying, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, he gives us to understand at the same time that it is to be used properly. For it has been revealed and given to us for the very purpose that it may be of constant use and profit. Hence it is a natural inference, since using the holy name for falsehood or wickedness is here forbidden, that we are, on the other hand, commanded to employ it for truth and for all good, as when one swears truly where there is need and it is demanded. So also when there is right teaching, and when the name is invoked in trouble, or praised and thanked in prosperity, and so forth all of which is comprehended summarily and commanded in the passage Psalm fifty fifteen, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. For all this is bringing it into the service of truth, and using it in a blessed way, and thus his name is hallowed, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thus you have the sum of the entire commandment explained, and with this understanding, the question with which many teachers have troubled themselves has been easily solved, to wit, why swearing is prohibited in the gospel, Matthew 5.24 and following, James 5.12, Matthew 5.33-37, 26.29, Acts 21.20-26. And yet Christ, St. Paul, and other saints often swore. The explanation is briefly this. We are not to swear in support of evil, that is, of falsehood, and where there is no need or use. But for the support of good and the advantage of our neighbor we should swear. For it is a truly good work by which God is praised, truth and right are established, falsehood is refuted, peace is made among men, 
obedience is rendered, and quarrels are settled. For in this way God himself interposes and separates between right and wrong, good and evil. If one part swears falsely, he has his sentence that he shall not escape punishment, and though it be deferred a long time, he shall not succeed, so that all that he may gain thereby will slip out of his hands, and he will never enjoy it, as I have seen in the case of many who perjured themselves in their marriage vows, that they have never had a happy hour or a healthful day, and thus perished miserably in body, soul, and possessions. Therefore I advise and exhort as before, that by means of warning and threatening, restraint and punishment, the children be trained betimes to shun falsehood, and especially to avoid the use of God's name in its support. For where they are allowed to do as they please, no good will result, as is even now evident that the world is worse than it has ever been, and that there is no government, no obedience, no fidelity, no faith, but only daring unbridled men, whom no teaching or reproof helps. All of which is God's wrath and punishment for such wanton contempt of this commandment. On the other hand, they should be constantly urged and incited to honor God's name, and to have it always upon their lips in everything that may happen to them or come to their notice. For that is the true honor of His name, to look to it and implore it for all consolation, so that, as we have heard above, first the heart by faith gives God the honor due Him, and afterwards the lips by confession. This is also a blessed and useful habit and very effectual against the devil, who is ever about us, and lies in wait to bring us into sin and shame, calamity and trouble, but who is very loath to hear God's name, and cannot remain long where it is uttered and called upon from the heart. And, indeed, many a terrible and shocking calamity would befall us if, by our calling upon his name, God did not preserve us. I have myself tried it, and learned by experience, that often sudden great calamity was immediately averted and removed during such invocation. To vex the devil, I say, we should always have this holy name in our mouth, so that he may not be able to injure us as he wishes. For this end it is also of service that we form the habit of daily commending ourselves to God with soul and body, wife, children, servants, and all that we have, against every need that may occur. Whence also the blessing and thanksgiving at meals, and other prayers, morning and evening, have originated and remain in use. Likewise the practice of children to cross themselves when anything monstrous or terrible is seen or heard, and to exclaim, Lord God, protect us, help, dear Lord Jesus, and so forth. Thus, too, if any one meets with unexpected good fortune, however trivial, that he say, God be praised and thanked, this God has bestowed on me, and so forth. As formerly the children were accustomed to fast and pray to St. Nicholas and other saints. This would be more pleasing and acceptable to God than all monasticism and Carthusian sanctity. Behold, thus we might train our youth in a childlike way, and playfully in the fear and honor of God, so that the first and second commandments might be well observed and in constant practice. Then some good might take root, spring up and bear fruit, and men grow up whom an entire land might relish and enjoy. Moreover, 
This would be the true way to bring up children well, as long as they can become trained with kindness and delight. For what must be enforced with rods and blows only will not develop into a good breed, and at best they will remain godly under such treatment no longer than while the rod is upon their back. But this manner of training so spreads its roots in the heart that they fear God more than rods and clubs. This I say with such simplicity for the sake of the young, that it may penetrate their minds. For since we are preaching to children, we must also prattle with them. Thus we have prevented the abuse and have taught the right use of the divine name, which should consist not only in words, but also in practice and life, so that we may know that God is well pleased with this, and will as richly reward it as he will terribly punish the abuse. End of the Second Commandment